One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here Welcome in, everybody. Episode we three. Yeah. Oh, the phone for the podcast in Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, February 15th, 2021, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend. I hope you listened to Thursday's show, not just because Nate Oates was great, but because I told you Sunday's Valentine's Day. I hope you remembered. I hope you woke up. Hope you had your chocolates and your cards and everything ready to go. And I hope you enjoyed a fun weekend in college hoops. Big show today, fun show today. And I think there's two topics off the top that, that I really want to start with. The first one, the NCAA this weekend put out that mock bracket that they do every year, essentially kind of telling you who would be where if the NCAA tournament started today. Really fun kind of event. Uh, and I had a couple thoughts on it that I'll get into. Uh, I'm not going to do team by team. Oh my God, this team was a two seed. How they should be a three. What is going? I'm not going to do that. What I will do is just some general thoughts, including, by the way, the fact that, that really I find it kind of interesting. This was the first time that it really struck me how different an NCAA tournament could look without Kentucky, Duke, Michigan State, maybe North Carolina. Kansas probably is going to be somewhere between a 7, 8, 9 seed, somewhere in there. And then we will switch to kind of some on-the-court stuff. One big topic from the on-the-court portion of the slate in college hoops, that was Michigan. I I thought Michigan coming off a COVID pause and not only beating Wisconsin but doing it on the road, it said something to me. It said that I think this is a team that as we get set to fill out our brackets, and all you guys tell me you ain't going to fill out a bracket, but I know you will, uh, uh, it tells me that I believe that Michigan is probably a lot closer to Baylor and Gonzaga than people give them credit for. But also on top of that, I think they're good enough to beat Baylor and Gonzaga. So we'll talk a little bit about Michigan, take a quick break, go through some of the rest of the games from the weekend as Creighton dominates Villanova in the Big East, UConn nice win in the Big East, Kentucky solid victory finally seemingly turning a corner. Arkansas, I think, cementing their NCAA tournament spot. Tennessee, on and on and on and on and on. A couple other results from the weekend. But I do want to start with that mock bracket that came out on Saturday afternoon. CBS, about 12.30 Eastern time, it was revealed. And for people who don't really kind of know or follow college basketball 365 days a year, essentially what it is is a lot of what the college football playoff committee does in the fall. College football playoff committee realized that first year, hey, People like brackets. People will watch a show about brackets. And so the college football playoff committee with about a month left in the season decided to or decides to every single year put out where the top four stands every single week. And then we spend three or four days debating about it. College basketball said, hey, hmm, that's a good idea. We should do that for college basketball. And so once a year, every year, They put out a mock bracket in the middle of February just to kind of give everyone a snapshot of where college basketball is at this moment in time. It's done by the actual selection committee, so this is not friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Joe Lenardi, putting out his thoughts. It's not Jerry Palm. It's not anybody else who does a bracket. This is the actual committee telling you these are the teams that we like and this is where we would rank them. Very quickly, before I get to some thoughts on it, I do just want to tell you the teams that were involved. I won't spend too much time here because it's kind of boring, but number one seeds, I don't think there's any major surprises. Gonzaga, 
Baylor, Michigan, and Ohio State are the number ones. Illinois, Villanova, Alabama, and Houston are the number twos. Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Oklahoma are the number threes. And the number fours, Iowa, Texas Tech, Texas, and Missouri. So that is what the top 16 of the bracket look like. And before we get into the teams themselves, let me first, give me a second to go on my soapbox, okay? Because I don't get too mad about too much. I mean, I get fired up. That's what this show is, me getting fired up about stuff. But there's not too much that I get genuinely mad about because I think in general, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I just, I like sports. I like talking about sports. I don't take life too seriously. I think the world is a pretty good place. I think things are fun. And so I try not to let little things bother me. But there is one thing with this bracket that does bother me, and I just want to talk about it really quick. And that is the fact, why do we put this bracket out first thing on a Saturday morning, right before we're about to play a full slate of games with all of these teams actually playing? I talk about this every year, but in sports, among the things that makes absolutely no sense to me, why are we putting out this bracket first thing on Saturday when all these teams are going to play, and within two or three hours, this bracket is going to be considered useless? What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about this. First off, there were games going on when the bracket was actually dropped on Saturday. So Ohio State, which was a number one seed in this most recent bracket, they were playing when the bracket was released. What would it, what good does it do if Ohio State, and thankfully they were beating Indiana because Indiana stinks, but if Ohio State was losing, imagine the committee chairman being on TV on one channel saying how great Ohio State is all while they're losing. Doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? I'll take it a step further. Three of those top 16 teams all lost on Saturday. West Virginia, one of the three seeds. Tennessee is one of the three seeds. And Missouri is one of the four seeds. Why are we releasing this right before all the games are played on Saturday when it's going to change exponentially within 24 hours? This is my number one pet peeve, maybe in sports. And it's so meaningless and it's so stupid. But I just can't deal with stupidity. If I was running CBS, if I was running the NCAA tournament, if I wanted people to care about this, this is what I would do. CBS always has that big Sunday game. On Sunday, it was Michigan at Wisconsin. Why not just release the bracket after the game on Sunday? Call me crazy. I don't know. Sounds like it'd be a good idea. First of all, it makes sense because all the teams will have played at that point. So you have the most accurate reflection of what college basketball actually looks like if that's what you're interested in actually doing is representing where college basketball is. Two, it actually puts the committee a little bit to work. It actually puts them in crunch time, in go time, where there are games going on all day Saturday, all day Sunday, all day Monday, or all day Sunday, excuse me, and then Sunday night you reveal the bracket. You know what that's actually like? Oh, I don't know, Selection Sunday. We don't put out the bracket on Saturday for the NCAA tournament when we got games going on Saturday and Sunday. We put it out Sunday night, and that bracket changes up until the minute the bracket is revealed because we have games going on. Probably a good test run for the committee to do the same. Get in a room. Hey, Sunday morning, hypothetically, Houston loses. Well, now we got to move them down. Well, now we got to move this team here. Well, what about that team? Probably good prep for them. But most importantly, you know why it's a good idea? Because it actually would be create headlines and something people would talk about. Now listen, I understand it's college basketball. 
I understand college hoops is a niche sport, although honestly everything is a niche sport except for the NFL, college basketball, or college football, and the NBA at this point. Just about everything's a niche sport, okay? But I, college basketball is a niche sport, and I understand even if you release this bracket on Sunday night, it's not as though like Stephen A. Smith is going to lead first take with it on Monday morning or Colin Cowherd, my buddy, is going to lead his show on Monday morning with it. But on the, at the same time, at least it gives shows like this, shows like uh, John Rothstein's podcast, CBS Sports could do uh, an hour special after the bracket reveal. ESPN can talk about it after the bracket revealed. And then you actually have something that reflects what happens in college football. The reason the college football show works every week is because we talk, it, the, the, the teams are revealed on Tuesday, and then we have Wednesday through Saturday to yell and scream about it and get worked up. And why is Cincinnati here? And what about Florida State? Even though Florida State stinks, but you get the point. And Texas A&M should be number five, but they're number four. And what's going on? And like... That's why the college football playoff thing works is because we got 72 hours with nothing but airspace to fill. And again, I'm not saying that anyone that's not a diehard college basketball fan would be arguing about Missouri as a four seed versus USC, but it would give us something to talk about in a time where we're trying to create interest in college basketball and in the NCAA tournament. And CBS, if you're listening, my number one piece of advice Put this thing on Sunday night. It creates interest. It creates talk. It creates a talking point, and it creates the most accurate reflection of what the college basketball scene actually looks at at this moment in time. All right, I am off my soapbox, but that has bothered me for years. I think I've talked about it on this show before, and it makes absolutely no sense. Very quickly, in terms of the bracket itself, I don't think there's any real major kind of a, I'm going to get, you know, get fired up about this in terms of the teams and the seeding. As I mentioned, the one seeds are Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, and Ohio State. The two seeds, Illinois, Villanova, Alabama, Houston. Three seeds, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Oklahoma. Four seeds, Iowa, Texas Tech, Texas, and Missouri. Again, nothing crazy to get fired up about. Gonzaga's the number one overall seed. I think you could probably argue Baylor at this point. But hey, guess what? It doesn't matter who's the number one overall seed versus the, the second overall seed this year because there is no kind of travel for the NCAA tournament. There's no home court advantage, nothing like that. So it doesn't really matter. And I don't think on the flip side, there's any team that was like left out that would normally be like, oh, you got to put them in. Like I personally probably would have had Florida State somewhere in that top 16. I think they're one of the 16 best teams I've seen. USC out of the Pac-12 is playing well. But other than that, there's not really that much to get worked up about. I will say, I think it does look kind of cool to see teams like Alabama, like Houston, like Illinois, teams that have not traditionally had this platform to be there. But what I would also say is it does kind of give me the next takeaway from the bracket itself, which is very simply this. This was the first time that I realized how crazy and quirky this year's NCAA tournament is going to be because this was the first time that it really kind of triggered in my head, okay, we really are getting ready for an NCAA tournament without Duke, without Kentucky, without Michigan State. North Carolina might be in, but they're not going to be a factor. Kansas isn't going to be a factor. UCLA is not going to be a factor. Arizona isn't eligible. 
But it wasn't until I saw that bracket with those 16 teams that I realized just how crazy this tournament is going to be and how different it's going to be. And it's crazy because I'm not the type of person that I need the blue bloods, right? Like I think there's there's this over saturation of conversation about you need to have this team or you need to have that team. And I'll watch it no matter what. I mean, I sit there and watch games when if Illinois is good, I watch Illinois. If Butler's good, I watch Butler. If Villanova's good, I watch Villanova. I don't need Duke and North Carolina and Michigan State and Kentucky to be good. But I do think for the first time I realized that it is going to be a tough watch for the casual fan who really doesn't follow college basketball. I mean, just think about that top 16. Illinois is an awesome team who I think can legitimately win the national championship. And I think Io DeSumo, I will talk about at some point, I think should be a national player of the year candidate. But I wonder how many people that aren't diehard college basketball fans even know who Illinois' coach is, even know who Ohio State's coach is, even know that Jawan Howard is Michigan's coach. I think they'll probably remember when they say, oh, yeah, Jawan Howard, he's the coach at Michigan. I forgot that. But how many people are going to know that? How many people know that Bryce Drew's brother is the head coach at Baylor? How many people know anything about Houston or Alabama or Oklahoma? And so I do think for the first time it hit me like, oh my goodness, this tournament is going to be so different. You could say what you want about Duke, whether they're the two seed, the one seed, a three seed, whatever. They're playing Thursday or Friday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, that main primetime window for the whole world to see. Same with Kentucky. Kentucky doesn't, get, doesn't play at 2 in the afternoon on the opening day. They play in primetime. Michigan State, Arizona, UNC, Kansas. And instead, it's going to be like, you look at that schedule, 7 p.m. On, on Thursday, even though there's no games Thursday, but 7 p.m. that opening night. Oh, Illinois. Oh, Ohio State. Oh, this. And you're going to be like, oh, wait a second. There is no Duke. There is no Kansas. It's going to feel weird. And I do think for the first time it hit me like, This probably isn't the best thing for the sport. And again, I'll watch anything regardless. If the NBA Finals have the Toronto Raptors, I'm watching the NBA Finals with the Raptors, even if it's not Kevin Durant and and LeBron James and whoever. If college football decided this year for the playoffs, Cincinnati was going to be in over Notre Dame, I still would have watched. But I do think it is going to be interesting to have a tournament without those marquee teams. Because I do think that while... Illinois, for example, is clearly a better team this year than Kansas, than North Carolina, than Kentucky, than Duke. What also stands out to me is how important those brands are. People say, oh, come on, you overrate it. No, I think it matters. Because I think when you see those teams, Kentucky, Duke, Kansas, a couple things. First of all, it does feel a little bit different, right? No different than when Ohio State makes the college football playoff as opposed to whoever, uh, you know, Washington made it one year or Michigan State made it one year or whoever. It feels different when it's Ohio State and Alabama. It just does. Two, those programs generally do represent not only the best of the best historically, but they usually have the best players too. Like I think it was interesting. I was kind of thinking about it going in. Kentucky, as bad as they are this year, won't make the tournament unless unless they win the SEC they still might have three first-round picks on their roster. And you might tune in thinking, oh, I heard this guy, B.J. Boston, isn't very good, or he wasn't very good this season, but he's going to be a pro, and I need to watch for him. Duke, Jalen Johnson, he had an up-and-down freshman year, but I got to watch. 
I think that matters. I think the fact that, that they're outside of Evan Mobley at USC and Jalen Suggs and Cade Cunningham, there aren't a lot of super notable NBA players that are traditionally found on Duke and Kentucky. Not saying that it takes away from what Oklahoma State is doing, what Gonzaga is doing, whatever. Not to mention that Gonzaga has like three or four future NBA players on their roster. It is just going to be different though. And then I think most importantly, I think those brands matter because it's something to root for or against, right? There's a reason a lot of people across college basketball that are casual fans that didn't go to a school like uh, whatever either love Duke or hate Duke. Because Coach K is there every year, and you either root for that guy or you root against that guy. You either root for the Carolina baby blue or you root against it. You either love John Calipari or you hate John Calipari, but you're always watching his team. And so watching this bracket reveal just made me realize how different this tournament is going to be and the idea that, wow, it's going to be that primetime window on Saturday, and we're going to be waiting for those teams that we always wait for and they're not going to be there. Doesn't take away from what Villanova's doing. Doesn't take away from what Alabama's doing. Doesn't take away from what Houston's doing. But it just will be different. All right, I do want to get to another, you know, topic from the weekend. By the way, that, that's my rant on the, 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 the mock bracket. But I thought it was the biggest story going on. I should mention, by the way, very briefly, kind of as a circle back moment to something that we talked about a few weeks ago, the NCAA did officially announce this week that for the first time, not for the first time, but that each individual conference will be allowed to select their automatic qualifier however they deem necessary. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that every single year prior to the NCAA tournament, we have these conference tournaments. And I love the conference tournaments. Most of you guys love the conference tournaments. And when those conference tournaments are done, the winner gets the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. So you know, it doesn't really matter in the Big East or the Big Ten, there's going to be seven, eight teams, but there's a lot of leagues where the automatic conference winner is the only one that goes to the NCAA tournament. Well, this year, because of COVID, the NCAA has basically said, you as a conference get to determine who your champion is and who gets that automatic bid, which allows some of these smaller conferences, if they don't want to have a conference tournament, they don't have to have it. They can say, hey, Gonzaga, you were the best team in this conference all year. We're not going to bring everybody to Vegas just for you to beat their brains in again, for you to potentially have players test positive for the virus and be at a disadvantage for the NCAA tournament. We're just going to name you champ. We're going to cancel the tournament, whatever. Now, I will say I don't think there are very many conferences that are actually going to choose that route, and I discussed why on the show a few weeks ago. First of all, most of these conferences really have no idea who actually is the best team, and it's kind of unfair to pick a conference champion off of the regular season when there is such a big disparity in games. As an example, I kind of saw this stat yesterday on Saturday, and it blew my mind. Creighton beat Villanova. We're going to talk about that momentarily. Creighton has played 15, big, 14 Big East games alone, just games in the Big East. Creighton has played 14 of them. Xavier came back off a pause and played UConn, they have played 13 games total all season. They've only played five conference games. Creighton has played nearly three times that amount. And so that's why I don't think most of these conferences will, will take away the conference tournament because most of these conferences, it's impossible to actually say who the best team is coming out of the regular season because there's such a big disparity in games. 
I also think for the big conferences, and I already talked about this, but it just became official this week, so I want to make sure to kind of hit on it and highlight on it. But for most of the big conferences, they're going to play conference tournaments, one, because there's too much money involved. You can't not play a conference tournament because it's going to piss off ESPN and Fox and CBS, which is relying on that inventory in those games. And for the big conferences, it does allow you to get more teams into the NCAA tournament. The Big Ten has potentially four or five teams that are going to be on the bubble going into championship week. Well, what's the best way to get those teams some wins to get them off the bubble? Send them to the conference tournament where maybe they can upset an Iowa, an Ohio State, a Michigan, and pick up the wins that they need. I also think for the smaller conferences, they're going to play these tournaments because One, you can't name a conference champion off the regular season like I just said. And two, for a lot of conferences, it might be an opportunity to get a second team in. So the WCC, for example, where Gonzaga is, they'll play a conference tournament on the off chance that Gonzaga has a bad night and somebody else can steal a bid. More money for the league, more teams in the NCAA tournament. And you could see that with the AAC with Houston, with whoever, I'm just off the top of my head here, I'm just trying to think. The Mountain West has three or four teams that are in tournament to get in position to get a tournament bid, the A-10, etc. But the NCAA officially says, if you don't want to play a conference tournament, you don't have to. You just tell us who your automatic bid is so that we can go ahead and determine from there. I think they would like everybody to play a conference tournament because what they don't want is they don't want, say, Gonzaga just not showing up for a conference tournament or opting out. But we will see what the deal is. But the bottom line is that came down. It's something I talked about, so I did want to follow up there. And it kind of pertains to that NCAA picture that I led the show with. All right, let's transition to the court. And I think the way that this show, the rest of the show is going to kind of be set up is, is pretty simple. So I want to talk about one game specific, but it's not really a game as much as it is a trend, a thought, a take, an opinion, whatever. And then what I'll do is I'll take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about the rest of the games from the weekend because I do think there were some good games that are worth discussing that don't have to be, this is the biggest story ever. But I do think like Creighton beating Villanova matters. Kentucky maybe turning a corner against Auburn matters. UConn getting a win that they need against Xavier matters. Um, Who else? Arkansas getting a win they need against Missouri matters. Tennessee, what is going on with them? So we'll talk about all those games after a break, but I do want to start... And I do want to talk about on the court with one game specifically, and that came on Sunday night, or Sunday afternoon really, at the Kohl Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know why I set that up as it was such a big deal, but uh, Michigan, the number three team in the country, goes to Wisconsin and beats the Wisconsin Badgers 67-59. And if it was just about Michigan beating Wisconsin, I probably want to talk about it. Top five teams go to top 25 teams all the time and win on the road that's what makes college basketball so great and it's especially not a big deal in a year like this with COVID with all that kind of stuff but why I want to talk about it is because I think there's a bigger story and it represents something bigger and the context behind the game matters and the context of that story is very simply this this was not just another top five team beating a top 25 team this was a top five team that had been on a COVID pause for close to a month and had not practiced for close to three weeks and they went on the road and beat Wisconsin. And what that says to me is Michigan is so much better than anybody gives them credit for. And also, in a year where we have talked almost exclusively 
Gonzaga and Baylor, Baylor and Gonzaga. It's one or the other. You can only have one. Everybody else is playing for third place behind Baylor and Gonzaga, Gonzaga and Baylor. I think the Michigan Wolverines are a team that can not only win a national championship, but are uniquely built to beat each of those teams. And on the right night, under the right circumstances, I think they could beat either one or maybe both and be your national championship champion at the end of the year. First off, for people who uh, don't really know the backstory on Michigan, it's kind of crazy. Because not only were they on a one-month COVID pause, they were on a one-month COVID pause without a single player testing positive. For people who do not remember, after their January 22nd game at Purdue, another tournament team that they just beat the crap out of on the road, they find out that that new strain of COVID is on the campus at Michigan. The new strain from the UK, which is supposedly more contagious, blah, 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 blah. We're not going to get into COVID stuff on this show. I've done enough of that over the last year. But the university decided that because of the new strain being on campus, all of the athletic department had to be shut down. And the state health department jumped in and said all of the athletic department had to be shut down. And so Michigan, in the middle of a largely historic year, now I know Michigan has had a ton of success, multiple Final Fours in the last decade, multiple Final Fours dating back to the Fab Five era. It's not as though Michigan is some plucky ups. They're not Drake or Loyola Chicago, but they're in the middle of a pretty incredible season. So imagine having to shut down without a single positive test, without any way to get back on the court, and you do it, and you come back, and you have a game like this. And so on the one hand, I just want to give Michigan credit, frankly give everyone in college sports credit because it has not been an easy year, not just for top five basketball teams, but for football teams, baseball teams, tennis, golf, all the sports that play in the fall, all the sports that are going to play in the spring. It hasn't been easy. So let's give everybody credit here. But I also want to give Michigan credit for doing what they did, having to take a break, and coming back and playing the way that they did in Wisconsin on Sunday, falling down by 14 points, and then coming back and getting a win in a game where, frankly, they didn't even play that well. And that's what, when I look at Michigan, stands out to me. First of all, an incredible job by Juwan Howard assembling this roster. I've mentioned it on previous shows, but in a year where we all just say, like, oh, you have to have continuity from this year to last year to be a national championship contender, Michigan really isn't that. They're not Virginia, Villanova, Baylor, Gonzaga that basically returned their team intact from last year. Instead, they have some key players, but they also lost some key players. I mentioned it on a previous show, but Xavier Simpson is one of the best point guards in the history of the program. He graduated last year. John Teske was a double-double machine down low. He graduated last year. And in their place was a collection of transfers, freshmen, and a couple of returnees. I'm not going to say that it's a completely new roster, but you have a transfer point guard named Mike Smith from Columbia. You have a freshman center named Hunter Dickinson who uh, was a McDonald's All-American caliber player last year. You have another transfer from Wake Forest. You have some key returnees. And just credit to Juwan Howard for meshing all of these guys together on short notice with a weird offseason. It's funny, right? We, we, We hear from Coach K and John Calipari and Roy Williams, and I think they're all right, by the way, about how tough this offseason was not having a normal offseason. Juwan Howard largely dealt with all the same stuff and has his team in position to compete for a national championship. I would also add, by the way, shout out to Juwan Howard. I was thinking about this after the game on Sunday. Never forget that Michigan was considered one of the quote-unquote big losers of the offseason 
because their two top recruits, one, Isaiah Todd, who actually committed and signed with the school, ended up going to the G League. Josh Christopher was supposed to go to Michigan. He ends up going to Arizona State. And so Michigan was the big loser in the summer. Look at how good they are now. So, so I, I'm getting off topic here, but what I am saying is the way that Jawan Howard has built this roster and the way he's done it in this season is absolutely incredible. But as I look at the 30,000-foot view of college basketball, I think this is a team that is not only can make a deep tournament run, but is uniquely built to beat the best teams in college basketball, to beat Baylor, to beat Gonzaga. And here's why. When you think about Baylor, you think about Gonzaga, what are the things that they do well? We all know, right? They have great guard play. They don't turn the ball over. They shoot the three-point shot well. They score a lot of points. Baylor is a really good defensive team. Gonzaga not as much, but Gonzaga scores the ball so easily, I'm not sure it matters. And as I talk to people across college basketball, like the one thing that, that you know, I kind of keep asking people, well, how do you beat them? How do you beat them? How do you beat them? There's two ways. You have to have length on the perimeter to shut down those guards, can defend those guards on the perimeter, don't let them go crazy on you. You got to have size down low and athleticism down low because you have to have guys that can control the boards, that don't give up second chance opportunities because Gonzaga and Baylor will kill you. You give them two, three chances, they're not missing a second shot. And so when I look at Michigan, the two things that they have in abundance, they have big wings on the perimeter that can defend and they control the boards. In terms of the boards, they're number three in the country in defensive rebounds in terms of grabbing rebounds on the defensive end. They do not give up second chances out of 300-whatever teams. They are number three in the country. And then you look at them on the wing. They got four guys who are all big, athletic, physical, tough, can guard. Got a kid named Franz Wagner, whose older brother Mo Wagner played for the team now in the NBA. Chandy Brown, who was at Wake Forest last year, one of those transfers that I mentioned. Brandon Johns, Isaiah Livers, who are both back next year, back, back from last year. And so when I look at this team, that is what I see. I see a team that takes care of the ball, good point guard play. Mike Smith, the point guard, is really good. A lot of assists, not a lot of turnovers. They shoot the ball well, but they also defend the three, rebound the ball really, really, really well. And so when I look at the big picture of this season, I'm just telling you right now, I have planted my flag. It is February 15th when you're listening, maybe February 16th, maybe February 14th, depending on where you are. But Michigan is a team that because of how they're built, if they, don't, if they get the chance to play Gonzaga or Baylor, not saying they'll definitively win, but I think they're uniquely built to beat them. All right. Long, fun episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast so far. Uh, before I'm going to take a quick break. I do want to get to some other games from the weekend, but in the process of doing that, I want to take a quick break. You guys catch your breath. I'll catch my breath. I'm going to come back, talk a little Villanova Creighton, talk a little UConn Xavier, talk a little Kentucky Auburn, talk a little Arkansas beating Missouri, maybe a little Tennessee. I'm going to take a quick break, but I will be back here momentarily. All right, everybody. I am back. I uh, hope you miss me. I was only gone about, what, three seconds there, but I do hope you miss me. Do want to get to some other topics, I guess you would say, from the weekend in college basketball. Really just hit on some games, right? Because the, the bottom line is I, I separated the Michigan game. The reason I took the break was very simply this, is that the Michigan game to me felt like this crazy big picture. We need to talk about Michigan more than we are 
takeaway. That was important to me. I wanted to get it out. And there are also some other games that I want to talk about from this weekend. But I don't know that this that these that the rest of the games need like a big, oh my God, this is the most amazing takeaway that I've ever had. But I do want to talk about them and I do think they are important. And I want to start with Creighton and Villanova. And for people wondering why you start in there, well, both these teams are awesome. They're the two best teams in the Big East. And Creighton beat Villanova 86 to 70 on Saturday. I think this is a perfect example of what I was talking about, you know, half a second ago. I think this is a really big game in the context of the Big East and maybe even the national picture, but I don't think there's some, like, amazing takeaway to bring out of this game. Like, I don't think because Villanova lost, they're a terrible team that we'll never talk about again. Like, no, they're awesome. They're really good. Let's pump the brakes. Let's everybody take a break. I think Creighton is very good, probably a little bit underrated, probably a little bit up and down this year, needed this game, and I think it meant a little bit more to them, and that's why they got the W, and so let's get into it. Because when I say it meant more to them, what I do think is probably, frankly, uh, it really kind of goes back to last year, right? Because if you think about last year, there are so many programs that we kind of just acknowledge, they really kind of got screwed by the way the season ended. San Diego State was one, Dayton was one, Seton Hall was one. I don't think people realize how much Creighton lost by not playing the end of the 2020-2021, or the 2019-2020 college basketball season. This was a team that went 24-7, and was playing as well as anybody in college basketball down the stretch. They split the Big East regular season title, but they went to the Big East tournament as the number one overall seed. And I think within that program, they really thought, like, this is our chance. These next few weeks, we're going to show the world how good Creighton basketball is. And then, of course, the entire season was swept out from underneath them. They were literally on the court and got pulled off the court against St. John's in the Big East tournament. And so you flash forward to 2021, and I think they all season long, they have been playing with a major chip on their shoulder. Now, they've had ups and downs like everybody else. They've struggled. They've, by the way, played many more games than a lot of people, 21 games total. Some teams in their conference have basically played half of that amount of games. But I think they kind of all season long have been like, dude, what do we got to do to get some respect? We are a team that returned four starters off last year's Big East champ, number one seed in the Big East tournament, top 10 team to end the year, and nobody is talking about us. And then on the flip side, there's Villanova, returns four starters off a team with essentially the same record as us, and people are talking about them as a national championship pick. And so I am just telling you, this has been a game circled on the calendar for Creighton all year because they feel like inside that program, I'm telling you, I know it for a fact, inside that program they feel like, You guys in the media, all you talk about is Nova. We don't get the respect that we deserve. And it was funny because, of course, I I tweeted something to that effect on Twitter, and people were like, what do you mean Villanova doesn't get respect? They won, or they get too much respect. They won two national championships. Yeah, everyone knows that they won two national championships, but I think the guys at Creighton are like, we've played with them. We beat them by 15 last year, the second time we played them. We basically brought back the same amount of production this season as they do, and you're talking about them as a national champion and us as a nobody. And so I think Creighton took that edge with a chip on their shoulder into this game, and for the first time really all season, showed just how good they were. Like I said, they beat Villanova by 16. And I know I said there's no like amazing big picture takeaways, and I don't think they are, but what I will say is if you can get that production from Creighton for the rest of the season, that's a team that can compete with anybody, maybe not that 
Michigan, Baylor, Gonzaga tier that I keep talking about. But, like, that's a team that's a five seed that could potentially make a run in the tournament. You look at them, as I said, four starters back off last year's Big East champ, a bunch of veterans. They have a guard named Marcus Zagorowski, who I've talked about plenty on this show, finished uh, Saturday's game with 25 points, three of nine from three. Mitch Ballack, another senior, 20 points, six of eight from three. And that's the big takeaway. This was a team that shot the three ball about as well as anybody last year. Their numbers are a little bit down this season, but they go 12 for 26 from three. And I think this was an important game for them. This was a program that, again, like I said a minute ago, they have, they're one of the few teams that hasn't had a COVID pause at all. And as I talked about with Nate Oates last week, I think that to a degree it is now hurting teams that have not been able to have a break in the middle of the season to just get a Saturday off, to just get a week off, to just be able to recalibrate. They're tired, they're banged up, they're whatever. And I think Creighton was one of those programs that fell kind of in that category. So for them to get this win, they've now won six out of their last seven quietly. I think they are now officially like, okay, it's time to go. We got through kind of that midseason lull. Let's make a run. We can play with anybody. We just beat Villanova. Now, they still got to take care of business because they have been up and down all year. But I'm just telling you, if we get that Creighton team going forward, that is a team that is going to give a lot of people a lot of problems. And you talk about a 4-5-6 seed that could potentially make a deep run in the tournament. Creighton is it. Another quick result from the Big East. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but on Wednesday's episode, Thursday's episode, I, of course, talked about my alma mater, UConn, and they were coming off a loss to Providence. They had, at that point, lost four or five, and I just said, man, for the first time in a long time, I'm actually worried that UConn's going to miss the NCAA tournament because early in the year, they got off to a good start. They were playing really well. They cracked the top 25, and then their best player, James Booknight, goes down with an injury. They were able to sustain for a game or two, but after that, it just hasn't been the same. And so, like I said, they lost four or five. They lose to Providence. There's no energy within the team. And I started to say after that game, like, this might not be a tournament team after all. Big bounce back win for UConn on Saturday. They played at Xavier. Xavier was coming off a COVID pause. But what was so impressive was the energy that UConn played with. It felt like over the last two or three weeks, UConn was kind of treading water, hoping to get this kid James Booknight back. Hopefully, we'll get him back. We'll be okay. And Saturday was the game that they were just like, you know what? He ain't back. We don't know when he's coming back, and we have to lock in right now. Not to say James Booknight's, uh, you know, nursing an injury or whatever. What I am saying, though, is that, that <clears throat> excuse me, this was the first time that UConn played with the edge and energy that they had had earlier in the season. Most impressively, they scored 80 points, which they haven't scored that many in a long time, and got a lot of production from guys that have ultimately been role players throughout their career. R.J. Colagard had 24 points, Tyler Polly 10 points, both off the bench, Tyrese Martin, 15 points, Isaiah, we- Isaiah Whaley, 12, Andre Jackson, 5, and oh, by the way, Okuka Cook, a, to- a former top 50 recruit, was back on the court and played well in minimal action. Don't want to, again, go too crazy, too overboard, but that is the UConn team that most UConn fans have been waiting about three weeks to see. They finally see that team, and now it's going to be interesting. Because if they can get that production with the way that the that production from those guys, and then you get James Booknight back at some point, that is a team that can do some real damage the rest of the regular season and into the NCAA tournament. Schedule gets interesting coming up. Second game against Providence in about 10 days will be on Wednesday, Tuesday, excuse me. Then they play Villanova. 
And that's just going to be a good litmus, litmus test for where they are. And we certainly hope that James Booknight is back because I think it'll be a heck of a game. But solid win for UConn. Needed that win on the road. They get it. They are now 9-5 and five on the season. Speaking of solid win that they needed, how about those Kentucky Wildcats? And so let's go to the SEC now. We'll do a quick SEC whip around as Kentucky beats Auburn and for the first time in a long time gets a W. They had lost, I believe, what, six straight at some point? Plus, on top of the six straight, they had another game canceled against Texas. So let's do some quick math here. No, they had lost four straight and then three straight before that. So they had lost seven of eight with a game that was canceled in between. But they get the win over Auburn. And I know what you're thinking. Torres, you talk about the Kentucky. Well, first of all, Kentucky's the Los Angeles Lakers. You always talk about the Lakers, whether they're good or bad or whatever. But the reason this game was important is because it, it piggybacks off something I talked about last week, which is that it feels like finally Kentucky is starting to figure it out and starting to turn a corner. All of the problems that they've had all year finally seem to be like getting figured out. And what I mean by that is, first of all, there, this was a team that, as I've talked about quite a bit, game after game after game after game after game, just cannot figure out a way to win close games. There have been games that they had a chance to win at the buzzer. Notre Dame, Louisville. There have been games where they had a big lead late and fell apart. Georgia, uh, the Tennessee game last Saturday night. And so this was the first one that they had the big lead, they blew it, and then they were still able to hold on. They were up by, I believe, what, about 13 with nine minutes to go. Completely blew the lead, still figured out a way to win. Davion Mintz with a big shot late. On top of that, the guys that we all thought were going to be pretty good actually played that way. Isaiah Jackson, five-star freshman who's probably going to be a one-and-done. 18 points, 11 rebounds, two blocks. Limited foul trouble, too, which was really big for him. B.J. Boston, 17 points, including five three-pointers. And as I look at this team, what I think I realized, first of all, I said it last week, you can't blame everything on John Calipari, but this is a team now that is officially 19 games into their season, and you know what the 19-game mark is for Kentucky most of the time? About the middle of January, under a normal year, Kentucky has played 19 games somewhere around the middle of January. And when does Calipari usually figure things out? And when does Kentucky usually turn a corner? It's right around the middle of January. They might struggle in November. They might struggle in December. They might lose an early conference game. Last year, I, last year I think they were good. I remember the year with Tyler Hero, they lost at Alabama early. And it's about that mid-January point that they finally start to figure it out, which is about the 18-19 game point. And so when I look at this team, I'm like, you know what? Maybe they are st finally starting to figure it out on the same time frame that Calipari figures it out games-wise, even if it's way later in the calendar. Now look, obviously in the bigger picture, I understand. This is a team that is not going to make the NCAA tournament unless they win the SEC tournament. Like, you know, we don't have to do the whole like, well, if they win 7 of 8, like, no. They have to win the SEC tournament to make the NCAA tournament. But I also think when I look at this team, how close they've been, how many times, I think it's in the cards. First off, you got to remember, the schedule finally softens up a little bit. They do have to play at Tennessee this weekend, but LSU's behind them. Two games against Bama are behind them. Arkansas is behind them. Missouri's behind them. The Otta Conference is behind them. Things finally start to loosen up a little bit. You got Vandy on the road on... 
Tuesday. That's a game you better win. Like, I'm just going to – I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's actually Wednesday. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's a game that you got to win. You get A&M late. You get Ole Miss late. Those are games that you should win. And if you can go 3-1 and one down the stretch, yeah, 9-14, and 10-13, whatever it is, it doesn't look great going into the SEC tournament. But if you can win four or five going to Nashville, I'm telling you, this is a team that I think could compete with anybody in the SEC. Never forget, they went to Alabama and were leading Alabama with four minutes to go. They were leading Tennessee by 10 with 10 minutes to go. They beat LSU. They beat Florida. So I'm not saying they will make a run. They can't. But what I am saying is they're finally starting to figure it out. Everybody kind of knows their roles. And I do believe that you better, you know, it's one of those, you better stick a stake in them when, they're, when you can. I don't know if that even makes sense, stick a stake in them. But you better, when you get the chance for the kill shot, you better do it. Because if you give this team hope, it's one that can go to Nashville and I think do some damage in the SEC tournament. And who knows? I mean, could we be talking about, you know, a 15 and 15, 15 and 16 Kentucky team somehow getting into the NCAA tournament? I don't know, but I don't think it's inconceivable. And I think it obviously started on Saturday with a very nice win over Auburn. Two other results from the SEC. First one, Arkansas. So it's kind of ironic. I'll, I'll go from Kentucky to Arkansas because these two teams played on Tuesday night at Rupp Arena. And I talked a lot about this last game. And I talked about Kentucky. Maybe they can finally build the moment, build off the momentum of being so close against Arkansas. But also for Arkansas. What did I say, guys? And I know we got some Arkansas fans that listen. You remember what I said, right? I said, just keep beating the teams that you're supposed to. Just keep taking care of business. And if you can steal a big game here, a big game there, it's only going to enhance your tournament resume. But to get into the tournament, you don't need this incredible win. You just got to keep beating the teams you're supposed to. Well, they go on the road Saturday, and they win at Missouri. They beat Missouri at Missouri. And why is that important? Quad one win immediately after a quad two win. Arkansas is now 16-5, and five, tied for second place in the SEC with LSU. I guess Florida, by technicality, is tied with them in the loss column. But I only bring that up because I say, I told you, Arkansas fans, it was going to be fine, and it is. And in the bigger picture, this is an incredible testament to how far this program has come in a short amount of time. First of all, from Saturday's perspective, great win. Missouri's a legitimately good team. As I talked about earlier, they were top 16 in that, that you know mock bracket. It took till overtime. It took a bunch of bad refereeing. Arkansas was the better team for about 99% of that game. They get the dub, four starters and double figures. I thought Connor Vanover, that big center, played pretty well. I am so impressed by Arkansas's freshman class, Moses Moody, Devontae, Devo Davis, Jalen Williams, etc. But what I also think this speaks to about me is early in the season, Arkansas was really struggling. I think at one point they were, what, 2-4 and four in SEC play? And they did. Arkansas fans, you know you did it. Not your fault. Every fan base does it. They did the, oh, Eric Musselman can't, like, what is he doing? They're not ready. Well, actually, no. Eric Musselman knows what he's doing. Eric Musselman, former NBA coach, was second in coach of the year in the NBA. I think he knows basketball. And what it shows me was what happened to Arkansas is they got the toughest part of their schedule at the worst possible time. And frankly, at a time that we didn't even know it was the toughest part of their schedule. If you remember, within what, the first five games of SEC play, here is what Arkansas's first five or six games of the SEC schedule look like. They open against Auburn, okay, they get a win. 
but then they play Missouri at home, at Tennessee, Georgia, at LSU, at Alabama. So you're talking about maybe the four best teams within the first six games, three of those games on the road, at Tennessee, at Alabama, at LSU. And oh, by the way, it was without your most important low post player, Justin Smith, who leads his team in rebounding second and scoring. And so when Arkansas fell apart early, it was, oh my God, the, the staff, they're, they're not ready for the SEC. No, they're, they're going to be fine. Because Justin Smith came back in the Alabama game, got healthy. Arkansas has now won six straight SEC games. They have now won uh, six of their last seven. Their only loss was to uh, Oklahoma State at Oklahoma State. And it speaks to what I said on last show. This is a tournament team. I've been saying it all along. But people were talking, oh, it's because you know Musselman. You have him on the show. No. Just watch the games. They're deep. They're athletic. They're long. They shoot the ball well. They defend their butts off. They're good. I'm not saying, again, they're Gonzaga or Baylor, but that's a tournament team. And so this team has quietly over the last few weeks, as they've gotten healthy, they've built confidence, and as it just turns out, they played the toughest part of their schedule at the worst possible time when they were banged up. They've now won six straight SEC games. I expect by the time you guys listen to this, they will be ranked in the top 25. And they're another one. I don't, we'll find out just how good they are because they do still have some tough games left. But their toughest games are at Bud Wall and Arena, okay? They got Florida, Alabama, and LSU all at home. Those are three games that they can win at home with a limited crowd at Bud Walton. But to me, it speaks to the fact that this is a really good team. They're an NCAA tournament team. And I'm really excited to watch them because I think, and, and I've been saying this since Coach Musk put this team together back in the springtime. This is a team. They get to the tournament now. They might be an 8-9 seed, but they aren't going to run into a single team that has more athleticism than they do, more size than they do, more length than they do. And I think they're going to give somebody fits as a 6-7-8-9 seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, last little SEC note, Tennessee. Tennessee, 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 Rocky Top, you'll always be home, sweet hope to be. You get the point. Tough loss for Tennessee. They lose at LSU. The game's never really competitive. Hate to brag, it was my best bet of Saturday, was LSU plus the points. And a couple things. First of all, what I think it really speaks to is I think everybody was a little bit too excited about Tennessee off of that uh, two-game stretch where they beat Kentucky at Kentucky in a game they were losing by 10 with 10 minutes to go, by the way, and then you beat a really bad Georgia team. Oh, they figured it out. And everyone, and by the way, people were like, oh, Torres, well, you said they figured No, I said they finally found an alpha in Keon Johnson. We'll see if they figured it out. But apparently they didn't. And I thought there was a little too much hype with Tennessee off those two wins because they had just lost to Ole Miss a few games before that. And when it comes to Tennessee, it's really interesting, right? After they lost, I had a few people ask me. They're like, Torres, what do you think? Is Rick Barnes overrated? Does he stink? Have we reached our ceiling under Rick Barnes? I'm telling you, every fan base, you guys are too much. You guys drain me. There's not a single fan base that's like, yeah, my coach is perfect. And there's a lot of really good coaches out there. But my answer is, I don't think this is a Rick Barnes problem, okay? And let me explain why. What I think this is a problem is, I think largely probably that Tennessee was probably a little bit overrated coming into the season. I think they're, you know, somewhere between the 12th and 22nd best team in the country. Probably a five seed, a four seed. Could make it to the Sweet 16, won't necessarily. But what I think is, we saw 
two juniors last year that had a really good season, Eve Pons and John Fulkerson. And we immediately assumed that they would make a leap this season to go along with a top five recruiting class that included two five-star freshmen. And to me, this is this is where the this is where the disconnect between who Tennessee is and who we thought they would be. This is where it is. Is that I think this is what I think. Two years ago, three years ago, Tennessee won the SEC. They brought back their two best players, Admiral Schofield and Grant Williams. They got all the way to number one in the country. They ended up, I believe, as a two seed in the Sweet 16, one shot away from going to the Elite Eight, where they would have had a chance to go to the Final Four. And so, what I believe happened, and I'm guilty of this as well, for the record, I am guilty of this. As I think we saw a basketball program that had two players that played really well one year back in 2017 or whatever. They, they take an even bigger leap the next year, and Tennessee is a national championship contender. And I think last offseason, we saw two players that were veterans that we thought were really good, that we thought could take a big leap this year, like Schofield and Williams did, and they haven't done it. And we thought we'd put them with the two freshmen, and they'd be really good, and that hasn't happened. The two freshmen have lived up to their end of the bargain, but the vets haven't. I found it interesting, Fulkerson and Pons, their numbers are both down this season. Now, I will say in their defense, they're both banged up. They both need to get healthy, and maybe that's the, the key to Tennessee's success, kind of like Alabama. Maybe they just need to sit guys, not worry about a re- regular season SEC title, just worry about getting healthy before the NCAA tournament. But I think that's the biggest issue, is that the two guys that you thought were, gonna, were already good and were going to make a bigger leap just haven't. But I also think part of it is on us in the media, myself included, fans, whatever, that assume that they were Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield 2.0. I think they're really good players. I think they're really good program players. But Grant Williams is in the NBA right now. Admiral Schofield, I believe, is in the NBA right now. He got some run with the Washington Wizards last year. Are John Fulkerson and Eve Pons NBA players? Because they aren't. They don't look like it to me. And so when I look at this team, I think that's the biggest problem. They got two veterans, and I'm not criticizing the veterans. I'm just stating facts that we thought would be better than they were. They're not. You don't know what you're going to get from them game to game. Rick Barnes talked about it after the game. And I think that's Tennessee's biggest problem. I will say, they, if they can get healthy, I think they can be interesting. But it's kind of what I said a few few episodes ago, that really just one of those deals where I just think it's time to just sell on Tennessee. Like, if you just thought they were that top five team in that Baylor, Gonzaga, Michigan category, they're just not that team. And I don't think they're going to be that team at any point this season. I think that's basically it for the weekend, guys. I've talked and I've talked and I've talked and I've actually behind the scenes started and stopped quite a few times because I didn't like how some of it went, but I'm finally happy with the show and I think I'm going to get out of here. I'm trying to look for any more meaningful results Uh, in the Missouri Valley, a split from Loyola, Chicago and Drake, kind of an interesting result there. Drake now 20 and two, Loyola 18 and four, USC picks up another win in in the Pac-12. They are the best team in the Pac-12 and they are a team that they can make a deep run. Maybe I'll try to get Andy Enfield on the show. He's a friend of mine. We'll see what happens. But I think for now, I'm going to get out of here. I think that's it for today's Aerotour Sports Podcast. Before we get out, uh, make sure you subscribe. I don't think I said it off the top. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aerotour Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. 
AaronTorresPodcastQuestions at gmail.com. If you have any questions for the show, AaronTorresPodcastQuestions at gmail.com. If you have questions for the show, if you're still listening, by the way, a couple other things. Find the YouTube channel, a lot of good stuff up there. And also, I've said this before, but started a mailing list. So many of you ask me, Torres, you know, you do so many different things and you write these articles here and you do these podcasts and where can I find all of your stuff? I have an, an email list. It will be tagged atop my Twitter page. Go find it at Aaron underscore Torres uh, where you can get all my good stuff. But I think that's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. Big week ahead. Good guess ahead. I will be back later this week.